Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about reasons why we shouldn't trust our pure notions of the Puritans. It really isn't my goal today to rail about history textbooks or sociology textbooks or just the way uh, secondary education is handled in America. I will mention, though, that it's pretty much become a political process. In states that I've lived in, there's been just as much talk from political parties about taking over the school boards as there has been about taking over the courts or taking over the governor's mansion. And part of that is the ability that you have when you're in control of the school board to determine what is taught, which textbooks are bought, which textbooks are not bought, or perhaps even more direct influence, more draconian measures over what teachers are allowed to include in their syllabus and what they aren't. I'm not going to go there this week. It's enough today to lay some questions at our feet about the concepts we have about the good old days. Now, my ideas about the good old days have been pretty well documented, going all the way back to the ninth inappropriate conversation and an overview of the decades. I've railed pretty clearly about the good old days and how they probably didn't exist. But I was referring to the 50s and the notions that we have that somehow America before the 1960s was a pure and lovely place and no one ever did anything wrong and that there were there were no gay and lesbian people back then. There were no abortions performed back then. No one committed any adultery back then, all of which we know are lies. But do we realize how far back those lies go? Do those lies about the purity of the good old days go back before the last hundred years? Do they go back to before there actually was a United States of America. And I would suggest they go back to before there was even such a thing as the Articles of Confederation. The reason I think that is because of work that has been done by a historian named Richard Schenkman, and I'm going to refer quite liberally to one of his books. Schenkman is the editor and founder of George Mason University's website called History News Network. It features articles by historians on current events. He's a writer, historian, producer, journalist and college lecturer, and for many years he was the managing editor of KIRO-TV News, the CBS affiliate in Seattle, Washington. He was the co-founder of TomPain.com, an internet journal of opinion established in 1998. If you're wondering whether Schenkman is my different drummer this week, he's not, and the hint is in the internet journal that he provided. Schenkman has led me to a different, different drummer. And along the lines of questioning what we're taught in high school, you know, in my high school, we, we never read Thomas Paine's Common Sense. We read the Declaration of Independence, but even today, I think reading the Declaration of Independence as required schoolwork could be extremely controversial, depending on what school district you're in. But the other book that I want to refer to, and I'll quote from liberally, is a book of his called Legends, Lies, and Cherished Myths of American History. That's an earlier publication. In fact, I'll be referring to a 1998 edition from William Morrow and Company. Uh, more recently, he's produced another book called Facing the Truth About the American Voter. Uh, Just How Stupid Are We is actually the title of that book. 
But looking backward to the earlier um, history book that he wrote, we're going to talk about the good stuff. I don't believe this episode is going to carry an explicit language sticker. I'm going to be careful and scientific in the language that I use, but we are going to talk about premarital sex, abortion, and our notion of the traditional family unit. Beginning with Shankman's chapter called Sex, the subject of sex may be the most fertile source of myths in American history. Of these, the chief one is probably the firmly held belief that premarital sex is a 20th century phenomenon. Now, plainly, Premarital sex has been more widely practiced in the 20th century than ever before. But prenuptial coupling wasn't exactly conceived in the sexually promiscuous days of the 1960s or earlier in the sultry days of prohibition. As it turns out, Americans have, have a history of lustiness. Evidence indicates that Americans had a healthy carnal appetite even back in colonial times when sex was supposedly practiced only by husbands and wives who wanted to have children. In Bristol, Rhode Island, for example, between 1720 and 1740, one out of ten wives gave birth within the first eight months of marriage. Ten percent of the marriages would be what we might describe today as shotgun weddings. Back to Shankman. During the next 20 years, almost one out of every two newlywed couples had a baby before their marriage was nine months old. In venerable Concord, Massachusetts, a third of all babies born in the 20 years before the revolution were conceived out of wedlock. We're talking about stats here like 10%, 33%, and 50%. But one group of colonial Americans is believed to have been more puritanical than the rest. The Puritans. If Americans are sure of anything, it is that the Puritans were hostile to sex. And for that matter, all other worldly pleasures as well. As H.L. Mencken put it, in 1925, Puritanism amounted to the haunting fear that someone, somewhere, may be happy. Actually, the only haunting fear may be that Americans will never learn the truth about the Puritans and will forever misunderstand them. Scholars long ago determined that while Puritans frowned on immorality and were no doubt less promiscuous than their descendants, they happily welcomed the practice of sex. When one married couple revealed that they had been abstaining from sex to achieve a higher spirituality, John Cotton, the Puritan's Puritan, sternly recorded his belief that they were the victims of blind zeal, adding, They are the dictates of a blind mind that follow therein, and not of the Holy Spirit, which saith, It is good that man should not be alone. Some have charged that the Puritans were sexually repressed and inhibited, supposedly the reason for Americans' long-standing hang-ups with sex. In reality, the Puritans not only considered intercourse within marriage a positive good, but talked about it in public. When one James Maddock refused to sleep with his wife for two years running, the matter was taken up by the members of his congregation at the First Church of Boston. After a free and open discussion of the subject, they expelled him. In some ways, Puritan families may have been even more open about sex than American families today. As historian Jerry Frost points out, the fact that parents and children usually lived together in the same room, yeah, they really had no choice. Even if parents had been inclined to conceal rudimentary facts of sex from their children, as a practical matter, they couldn't. As a matter of fact, the Puritans apparently didn't try very hard to shelter their children from sex, and may have been even less protective than parents are now. 
Today, not even liberal parents allow their teenage daughters to sleep with potential suitors. But the Puritans did, as long as everyone remained clothed. The practice, known as bundling, sometimes led to sexual experimentation and unwanted babies, and nevertheless, it flourished. Bundling. I suppose at one point in my life I have been guilty of the practice of bundling, and I want to tell the story briefly and carefully and compare it to our attitude about the Puritans and pull it back to Schinkman's writings. When I was in high school, um, senior year for want of a better word, I was actively involved in the marching band and being in the marching band required that you be awake and outside with an instrument ready to practice or march or play or perform at 5.45 a.m. This didn't leave a lot of time. In fact, I would go to elaborate lengths to come up with time-saving measures to get myself as much sleep as possible. Um, so it, sometimes it included doing the, the rudimentary things of shaving and showering at night so that in the morning I could simply wake up, grab a granola bar or a, an instant breakfast or some, something quick and get out there onto the football field. But on a Friday night where there was a ball game, you could be up in the morning, 5.45 a.m., and practicing. That would end, you know, in an hour and a half or two. Then you'd go straight into the school day. Between the school day and the football game that night, you would barely have enough time to get home, change clothes, grab a quick bite to eat, and go back to school. Because there was another quick run-through or practice before the game, and my high school didn't have a home stadium. So every high school football game was, in essence, an away game. I mean, sometimes we were the home side of the sidelines, and sometimes we were the visitors' side of the sidelines. But it didn't matter in the sense that every single game we were loading a bus, loading an equipment truck, which for me was, you know, drums, and driving somewhere to a game. So you'd end up having to be, you know, get out of school maybe around 3, and you'd end up having to be back at 4.30. And by the time, you know, the football game was over and you'd returned and unloaded the equipment truck and all that, it was, you know, 10, 30, 11 at night. I can remember at times having difficulty with a midnight curfew because by the time you got home from the game, changed clothes and went to the party, the party was you know, well underway for one thing, and you could only stay half an hour because you had to turn around and leave and be home for a midnight curfew. The young woman I was dating at the time is now my wife, and she had a similar ritual at her high school. We went to rival high schools, so we didn't have the, you know, the same uniform, we weren't playing the same songs, we weren't marching the same routines. But she also was up well before the crack of dawn and out with her marching band preparing for their contribution to high school football and Friday night lights. And on one particular Friday night, I can remember both of us being really very tired and there being some question about whether we should go to the after game parties or not. And the thought we had, I believe, was, you know, if we just kind of relaxed a little bit, you know, we both had um, left our ball games, changed clothes. She was over at my house now. So we're in the upstairs bedroom in my house, door open, and I've changed clothes already. And, and the question is, when are we going to go? Are we going to go somewhere? If we're going to go, when are we going to go? Because it wasn't unusual. I mean, we're young. It wasn't unusual for a Friday night to include a special exception because a midnight curfew just didn't work after a ball game. And on more than one occasion, we would go to a midnight movie and not be home till 2, 2.30. But on this occasion, we ended up, I'm not exactly sure how it exactly happened. Um, we went from sitting on the bed trying to make a plan to being asleep. Now, 
that makes perfect sense when you consider the schedule, especially with Friday being the end of a school week. But here we were, upstairs, lights on, door wide open, on top of the sheets, fully clothed, in bed, asleep. Something the Puritans might have referred to as bundling. Well, I was awakened, having really no idea how long we'd actually been asleep, not really being conscious in my mind of the fact that we had fallen asleep in the first place, to the sound of angry parental voices yelling. Both of us were dragged downstairs and given a quick refresher on the birds and the bees with more than just a little bit of hyperbole, because the fact was, in the mindset of my parents, we were practically having sex up there because we were asleep in a bed. And I believe it was my wife who tried to find a way in a terrifying situation. Uh, you're dealing with somebody else's parents who aren't being rational. Um, tried to find a way to gently suggest that nothing was going on. We were fully clothed. And my mom's answer to that, which has become legendary in my household was that, you know what, by the, you could have sex in your sleep and not even know it. Or by the time you realize that you've taken all your clothes off and you were engaging in heavy petting, it would be too late to be past the point of no return. Now, clearly, for the Puritans, this must have occurred from time to time, based on the statistics of what we would call premarital or teenage pregnancy coming from this practice of bundling. But in our case, that wasn't going to be the situation at all. And I'm not 100% sure that either one of my parents were proud of their job of parenting on that particular night, because whatever they were trying to convey to us was lost in the absurdity of the situation. Because if we were going to engage in that sort of activity, we wouldn't have picked the house that had everyone in it. We wouldn't have picked a bedroom with a door wide open. And we wouldn't have been on top of the covers. So that was the whole question of bundling. And it's a dangerous thing, in my mind, to accuse a teenager with a teenager mentality of something they're not doing. Because my attitude as a teenager was kind of twofold. With parents, my attitude was always, if you accuse me of doing something I'm not doing, you have essentially given me permission to do it. I had the same attitude with preachers and teachers, too, so it wasn't just my attitude toward my own parents. My, I guess it came down to basically saying, if I'm going to be punished for doing something I didn't do, what's the difference in whether I've done it or not? And that's, again, I think probably a classic teenage mentality. The one thing I had going for me, though, that made me different, that made me odd, was that I had a different approach with peers, in that with peers, if I was pressured into doing something, or if I felt I was being pressured to do something, I was far less likely to actually do it. It almost became a matter of principle for me to show somebody that I didn't have to comply, that fitting in was not a priority for me. And maybe there's a connection between those two, although they seem kind of opposite to me. One is, you know, accuse me of doing something and I'm likely to do it even if I wasn't going to otherwise. And the other is pressure me into doing something I'm going to refuse to do it, almost just to spite people. So that was kind of the approach. But it reminds me of this sort of this tale of bundling where you've got this notion of back then what my parents considered to be practically having sex was normal, common, accepted practice, not just in any colonial American household in the Puritan American households. If I do nothing else with this particular episode of inappropriate conversations, I want to call out the idea that we have some very false notions of who the Puritans were. We have some very misguided ideas of historically who Americans are on questions like sex 
like the nuclear family, like abortion. And we're not teaching this in schools because this is one of the history books that would be too much of a political hot topic for anybody on either side of the political spectrum to even pretend to address. Other issues related to the Puritans and sex is about the, uh, I guess, the standards of punishment that you would see. Picking back up with Schenkman, the Puritans were not as open-minded about sexual immorality as Americans are today, of course, but they weren't as closed-minded as many of the moralists like Anthony Comstock, who came later. As the historian Carl Degler observes, the Sabbatarian, anti-liquor, anti-sex attitudes usually attributed to Puritans are a 19th century addition to the much more moderate and wholesome view of life's evils held by the early settlers of New England. In any case, the Puritans were no more morally intolerant than any other religious group that settled in America in the 1600s, and to single them out as somehow being different is simply unfair. Starbase 66, the international Star Trek and science fiction podcast. Join our collective at com or via iTunes, keyword Starbase 66. From this time forward, you will listen to us. History can be tricky, and it can be at its trickiest when it concerns a subject with which we are all familiar. Consider the question of abortion. Everyone knows abortion is legal today, but only because of the famous Supreme Court decision in 1973. But the assumption of most people is that before the court's ruling, abortion had always been illegal in the United States. That's a false assumption. In fact, there are no laws in the United States against abortion until the 1820s. And for many years after that, most states permitted abortions in the first four months of pregnancy. Abortion began to be generally outlawed only in the mid-19th century. Again, on the basis of the way the debate is shaped today, one would expect the clergy to have been behind the movement to outlaw abortion. But it was the medical profession that pushed for the change. Doctors undertook the effort of discovering, with the help of the microscope, that babies developed when an egg was fertilized by sperm. Before the discovery, only the sperm had been detected. No one had seen an egg. Thus, says Carl Degler, what is spoken of today as the moment of conception, the time when egg and sperm unite, had no specific meaning or even conceptualization for people at the beginning of the 19th century. About all that physicians and lay people alike knew was that at some point after sexual intercourse, the male's sperm, or egg, began to develop into a recognizably potential human being. As a result, everyone had believed that life began at about four months, when the mother felt the baby move in her stomach, a moment known as quickening. Another common error about abortions is that they were relatively uncommon until recently. Hard numbers are difficult to come by. But one researcher has estimated that in the second half of the 19th century, there was one abortion for every half dozen or so births. In the 1920s, it's reported that one in four pregnancies ended in an abortion. Doctors railed against abortion, one lamenting that even among the married, there are few wives who do not know of some means to destroy the fetus before it comes to full term, and who have not in some manner and at some time applied one or more of these means in their own cases but women continued having abortions apparently because they provided a guaranteed method of birth control. Sound familiar? We haven't changed all that much in the last 200 to 300 years. 
Abortions during all this time were generally considered illegal, yet Americans seem not to have been terribly bothered by the widespread resort to the practice. One statistic is particularly revealing. Between 1849 and 1858 in Massachusetts, in Massachusetts, of 32 accused abortionists brought to trial, not one was convicted. Juries composed solely of men freed every one of the suspects. Women seemed even less inclined than men to condemn abortion. As one doctor sadly observed in 1896, many otherwise good and exemplary women who would rather part with their right hands or let their tongues cleave to the roof of their mouths than to commit a crime seem to believe that prior to quickening, it is no more harm to cause the evacuation of the contents of their wombs than that of their bladders or of their bowels. Those were the good old days on the issue of abortion. Well, what about family life? In Schenkman's chapter, The Family, he writes this. Fundamental to the mythology of the American family is the idea that it can be conceived of as a fixed institution. Historians insist that over the years, the American family has taken on numerous shapes and undergone radical changes. To the man on the street, however, it is always just the good old American family, as if it has always remained the same, like something out of a Norman Rockwell painting, or television's Leave it to Beaver. There is the assumption, for instance, that child-rearing has always been left up to mothers. But according to recent studies of the family undertaken by Stanford University's Carl Degler, child-rearing in colonial times was mainly the job of fathers. Until the early 1800s, child-rearing manuals were not even addressed to mothers. It wasn't until the 19th century, when women had the economic freedom to devote themselves full-time to their offspring, that they began to play their familiar hearth-and-home role. We may have lots of points of view about Schenkman's history book, um, including, that's not your version of the truth, or um, your truth is not like my truth, or just because something's true doesn't mean we should teach it in our schools, or other sort of dangerous concepts like that. And this isn't just an issue where politically conservative people are failing to tell the truth and teach the truth, or the even more offensive notion that Christian people have conceived of specific lies that it is quote-unquote good to tell, because nothing could be further from Christ-like than telling the convenient lie. Now, it works on the other side of the political spectrum as well. I've alluded to this before, and at some point I may actually go into detail on it and, and share some of the written correspondence between me and some friends and family um, just a couple of years after 9-11, so maybe the year 2002, late in 2002 or 2003, there was a controversial case in California where a man sued to have under God removed from the Pledge of Allegiance or to remove the reading of the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag from schools because in his mind the reference to God was both offensive to his atheist beliefs, a reflection that the school was attempting to indoctrinate his daughter uh, on views that he did not share theologically, and a violation of the separation of church and state. And I tend to take a very moderate view here, as you might imagine. I'm not a fan of indoctrination. But on the other hand, I'm not a fan of knee-jerk whiplash hysteria on the other side as well. And what I shared with a friend of mine who took a much more liberal position than I have was that you've got to be very careful not to put words into the mouths of our founding fathers. And we see this on both sides. We see people selectively quoting 
George Washington and Thomas Jefferson to try to make the argument that these people were in favor of us being a theocratic state when other words more direct to the point from Jefferson in particular rail against this idea. It's almost impossible to conceive of Thomas Jefferson being opposed to the idea of, of a separation between church and state or, or the state not controlling the religion or the state not propping up religion because, well, it's clearly what his point of view was, right? We'll get to Thomas Paine here in just a moment. But one of the things that I mentioned, just referring to the Declaration of Independence, was that I don't think that it's wise as an American, whether you're a patriotic liberal American or a patriotic conservative American, to make an argument about words that can't be spoken in the classroom in any context and under any circumstance. Because the Declaration of Independence makes four very specific references to Almighty God as a deity, using words like providence, for example. And there's no way you can make a Jeffersonian argument that Thomas Jefferson's belief in the separation of church and state would inevitably lead to the notion that Jefferson's writings in the Declaration of Independence could never be taught in schools. If any one thing is true of Thomas Jefferson, it is true that he would have wanted the Declaration of Independence to be taught in schools. So clearly, there is no magic in the words under God. So Christians need to get used to the idea that saying a phrase like under God is not a magic word that's going to make everyone Christian or make our country holy. It doesn't work that way. But there's also no magic evil in the words either, at least not from an American perspective. Schenkman's career goes beyond history books. As I mentioned, he's uh, credited as the founder of a website called History News Network associated with George Mason University. And also in 1998, he established an internet journal of opinion called TomPaine.com. And Thomas Paine is our different drummer. One of the main reasons I want to cite Thomas Paine as a different drummer is that it's always struck me as odd that in my history classes in um, junior high school and high school, we were never called upon to read common sense. And that doesn't make sense to me, because as we're going to find out here in a moment, for those who didn't know, Thomas Paine's book, Common Sense, relative to the population of the nation in which it was published, is perhaps the most widely published book in the history of book publishing. Paine was born in the late 1730s and died in 1809. He is credited, and I'm referring liberally here to Wikipedia, as an author, pamphleteer, radical, inventor, intellectual, revolutionary, and one of the founding fathers of the United States. This is a crucial concept we'll get back to here in a minute. We talk about our founding fathers as being one monolithic entity with one you know, consistent point of view. It's simply not true. For every person that someone could offer uh, about a founding father who has a much more theocratic mindset in terms of how they thought government ought to be organized, you don't get any closer to somebody who conceived of an American government before we even had conventions to discuss how that government might be organized than Thomas Paine. Thomas Paine was discussing legislative branches and judicial branches and administrative branches before we get anywhere near the kind of government we read about in civics textbooks today clearly a founding father. But back then, to be a founding father, it was much more of a nebulous concept than we think, than we think of. We don't give ourselves credit as a colonial America for two things. First, 
for not being a nation yet. This is at a point before the concept of American citizen even existed or made sense. A lot of the people here were subjects of other countries. And Thomas Paine was you know, born in the English county of Norfolk and was a British subject. But as Paine points out in his writings, Americans were not all British subjects. Americans came from far and wide, as a matter of fact. And as I like to remind people from time to time, and I'll take a moment to do so here, a lot of people who came to this country as Christians came to America as Christians fleeing religious persecution. What kind of persecution were they experiencing? Do we really believe that most of the people in America came from Middle Eastern countries and the remnants of the Ottoman Empire fleeing the persecution of Muslims? Do we really believe that after the diaspora, there was a strong enough Jewish enclave somewhere in Russia or in Europe that these Christians were fleeing the persecution at the hands of Jewish people who were controlling a geographic area? No. The Christians that we refer to as coming to the American colonies to flee persecution, some of them were fleeing political persecution, to be fair. But those who were fleeing religious persecution were beyond any doubt fleeing persecution at the hands of other Christians. Protestants fleeing Catholics. Catholics fleeing Protestants. Protestants fleeing other Protestants. All of them fleeing governments who had aligned themselves with one or the other or their own brand of religion. So when we talk about America being a Christian nation, what do we mean? Let's say that I grant for the sake of argument that I think that concept is true. I'm a little bit on the fence, so don't get me wrong. But if I grant for the sake of argument that the concept is true, which kind of Christians are we? Are we a country made up of people who wanted to worship as they saw fit in a free country where both they and their neighbor were free to worship as they please, or as Thomas Jefferson has so eloquently stated, free not to worship at all if they please? Or are we a Christian nation in the sense of being those same persecutors that our colonial forefathers fled who have now come here to persecute again? So, are we a Christian nation in the sense of valuing our freedom and wanting to worship in our own way, without government interference, without our neighbor's interference? Or are we a Christian nation in the sense that we are the same kind of people that those colonists fled from? These are the kinds of questions, frankly, that Thomas Paine himself would have asked. Common Sense, as a pamphlet, as a book, was so influential that John, John Adams reportedly said, Without the pen of the author of Common Sense, the sword of Washington would have been raised in vain. So let's talk about the book itself. And I want to do so in this context. If you're an American, especially if you uh, are an American who considers yourself to be a patriotic American, and you've never read Common Sense, it's not a tough read. It is worth the time. It may be the single most important document at the time of the American Revolution, certainly, and one of the most important documents at the founding of this country. It's crucial. You know, I've got a book that I keep in the you know, religion shelf of my, of my bookcase uh, called Doctrines of the Early Church. 
And it's very interesting as a Christian to be able to read what the uh, original thinkers, what you know, some of the, the pre-Pope type people had to say about Christianity and the developing you know, understandings and, and the infighting over you know, what some of the you know, really challenging theological concepts in the New Testament mean. But if there was such a book as Documents of the Early American you know, Government and Politics, common sense would be chief among them. In relation to the population of the colonies at the time, Common Sense had the largest sale and circulation of any book in American history. Now, this is not to say that the Bible isn't the best-selling publication. It's talking about the number of people who bought this book compared to the number of people who lived in this country. And Common Sense actually takes the cake. Paine wrote and reasoned in a style that common people understood. He avoided the philosophical references and Latin references used by Enlightenment-era writers. Payne structured common sense like a sermon and relied heavily on biblical references to make his case to the people. A lot of those references about, you know, whether we really should have an adherence to kings, whether kings truly are God-ordained leaders, and whether anything in our biblical understanding of the concept of kings reflects a belief in, in the inheritance and the notion that there should be an ancestral lineage passed down through a family line. Historian Gordon S. Wood described Common Sense as the most incendiary and popular pamphlet of the entire revolutionary era. It sold 500,000 copies in the first year and went through 25 editions in that first year alone. And Thomas Paine donated his royalties from Common Sense to George Washington's Continental Army. So what is Common Sense all about? Well, it's divided into sections, and the sections themselves are pretty clear and straightforward. One is of the origin and design of government in general, with concise remarks on the English Constitution. Second one is of monarchy and hereditary succession. The third section, thoughts on the present state of American affairs. And I believe it's in this area that he actually outlines what he thought a U.S. Constitution should look like and how a U.S. government ought to be organized. And fourth, on the present ability of America with some miscellaneous reflections. And it's, essentially, it's here where Paine talks about the American colony's ability to wage war uh, being more effective than popularly known, and the fear of the British Army did not fully take into account the great distances and the logistical and supply chain problems that the British ultimately did have waging um, war uh, against the American colonists. Paine's arguments against British rule include these thoughts. It is absurd for an island nation to rule a continent. That America was not truly a British nation. It was composed of influences and peoples from all over Europe. And that even, even if Britain were the mother country, quote-unquote, um, that her actions would be all the more horrendous, for no mother would harm her children so brutally. And that the Puritans believed God wanted to give them a safe haven from the persecution of British rule. So what is the impact of common sense? Perhaps the biggest impact is when the original governments were being formed, even simultaneous to the events uh, leading up to and during the revolution. It was all about a select group of people that you really have this notion we have of founding fathers is a true notion in the sense that it was a select club. You needed to be wealthy. You needed to have land. You needed to be male. You needed to be white. You needed to be of a certain age. There was a small 
sort of conversation going about how the country should be organized and how, frankly, independence should be should be fought for. What Thomas Paine did with Common Sense was he brought the ordinary, everyday American into that political debate. His book was literally read in pubs. Imagine walking into a bar today where the television is turned down and the stereo is turned off because somebody wants to read a few pages from a political pamphlet. It's hard, it's hard to conceive. And yet at the time, that was exactly how Thomas Paine's ideas spread. I mean, you don't sell 500,000 copies on a relatively small colonial population without being viewed as a hit in every sense of the word. The moving words of common sense virtually knocked colonists down off their fence and into a fight for freedom as a new nation, literally inspiring participation and support for a revolutionary war among a population that was genuinely divided, some feeling that we ought to remain a colony of Britain, some feeling that independence was a good idea but not worth the cost of having to wage that fight or that battle, and others feeling they were more afraid of the uncertainty of what would come after independence than they were about gaining independence itself. And it is into that sort of, you know, almost ambivalence from some people and the disparate opinions of others that Thomas Paine came in, made very clear and specific arguments, and essentially tilted the American opinion, not just toward independence and revolutionary war, but in a united way that no one else had been able to accomplish at the time. It's fair to point out that Paine was not expressing a lot of original ideas in common sense, but he was using what might have been a unique uh, rhetoric as a means to arouse resentment toward British rule. The pamphlet probably had relatively little direct influence on the Continental Congress's decision to issue a Declaration of Independence. Wikipedia cites, and I think quite accurately, that that group was more concerned about how declaring independence would affect the war effort than they were in influencing people who might be reading or listening to political speech in a pub or in a town square. Loyalists vigorously attacked common sense. One attack, titled Plain Truth, has a person from Maryland named James Chalmers calling Paine a political quack and warning that without the monarchy, the government would degenerate into democracy. Even some of the American revolutionaries objected to common sense. John Adams, who had praised the influence of the pamphlet, criticized it later on in his life. Adams disagreed with the type of radical democracy promoted by Paine. He didn't believe that men who did not own property should still be allowed to vote and hold public office. Let's look at what kind of a radical concept that would be today and compare that to how far ahead of his time Thomas Paine was when you compare his point of view to the prevailing point of view of our other founding fathers. In 1776, a couple of years after the publication of Common Sense, Paine published The Crisis, a pamphlet series that was to inspire the Americans in their battles against the British Army. So shifting from should we fight in a revolution to how we fight in a revolution. To inspire his soldiers, General George Washington had the American crisis, this first crisis pamphlet, read aloud to them. And it begins with words that I think Americans might find familiar. These are the times that try men's souls. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will, in this crisis, shrink from the service of their country. But he that stands it now 
deserves love and thanks of man and woman. Tyranny, like hell, is not easily conquered. Yet we have this consolation with us, that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. It's history. And from about that time, 3500, 3000 BC, until about the American Revolution, the figures, Alexander, Julius, Caesar, and Tecumseh, Woodrow Wilson, William the Conqueror, and his Norman, the events, that that whole year, 1066, which led up to the Battle of Hastings, was a pivotal year. The drama. Another one of these successors, behind the backs of everyone else, steals Alexander's body and takes it back to his little territory in Egypt. The deep questions. What the heck happened? at the end of the Bronze Age. It's Hardcore History. Get Hardcore History at dancarlin.com. There is a kind of a disagreement, I would say, in how Americans view Thomas Paine, and it may explain in large measure why Paine is not more widely revered, why, why he's not more highly regarded when it comes to history books and, and secondary school education. He became notorious later in his life for the age of reason. After this period of American Revolution, he traveled to France and lived there for really much of much of the decade from the 17 late 1780s through the 1790s. He was involved in the early stages of the French Revolution where he wrote The Rights of Man. But it was really in 1793 and 1794 with his release of The Age of Reason that he became a notorious figure. His book advocates deism, promotes reason and free thinking, and argues against institutionalized religion and Christian doctrines. The Age of Reason was considered an assault on organized revealed religion, and his own advocacy of deism called for a rational free inquiry into all subjects, especially religion. This resulted in a only a brief upsurge in deistic thought in America, but it would later result in pain being reviled by the public and abandoned by his friends. Among the concepts in that book, I do not believe in the creed professed by the Jewish church, by the Roman church, by the Greek church, by the Turkish church, by the Protestant church, nor by any church that I know of. My own mind is my own church. All national institutions of churches, whether Jewish, Christian, or Turkish, appear to me no other than human inventions set up to terrify and enslave mankind, monopolize power and profit. And I believe in one God and no more. And I hope for happiness beyond this life. I believe in the equality of man. And I believe that religious duties consist in doing justice, loving mercy, and endeavoring to make our fellow creatures happy. These words were enough to make Thomas Paine virtually an exile. In the early 1800s, Paine left France for the United States, returning to the U.S. really in the early stages of the Second Great, Great Awakening. This was not the best time for him to be on the, uh, you know, the publication circuit for the Age of Reason. It was going to be a moment where America was embracing uh, upsurges in Christianity and particularly evangelical Christian thought. He had returned to America earlier in the decade at President Jefferson's invitation. But when he died in 1809, only six people attended his funeral. By then, he had been ostracized due to his criticism and, frankly, ridicule of Christianity. 
Thomas Paine, not fully appreciated, in my opinion, as an American founding father. And when we bandy about words like founding father and what that group of people collectively believed, it is absolutely an outrage that Thomas Paine should not only be left off the list in the minds of some people, but not be considered very first and foremost among that list of people. There are other key colonial American figures that I think would supersede or have a place of honor above Paine. But you're talking big names there. Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, George Washington. Once you get beyond those names, Thomas Paine simply has to be next. And Thomas Paine, as a, you know, a bold thinker, has to be taken, you know, lock, stock and barrel. Now, what does that mean to say that we can't shortchange our views on Thomas Paine? That means that as Christians, we have to get used to the idea that maybe we don't have as Christian of a nation as we think we do, or our founding fathers are not unified behind that idea as we've sort of accused them of being, because several of our founding fathers, not just Paine, Jefferson, Madison, Franklin, have some ideas that you're you know, the Christian church in America today would disagree with, not just the religious right and the radical conservative views of some Christians, but even mainstream Christianity would have a lot of issues with things that Thomas Paine had to write and had to say. But if we do take my approach and embrace Thomas Paine as a founding father, does that mean that the Bible has no place of honor among Americans' reading lists? Does that mean that religion has no place whatsoever in America's public life? And what did a man like Thomas Paine, who does not identify himself as a Christian, even at the time of writing Common Sense, have to say about it? As we close this different drummer segment, I'll come back and let Thomas Paine's words speak for themselves. But where, says some, is the king of America? I'll tell you, friend, he reigns above, and doth not make havoc of mankind like the royal brute of Britain. Yet that we may not appear to be defective even in earthly honors, let a day be solemnly set apart for proclaiming the charter. Let it be brought forth, placed on the divine law, the word of God, let a crown be placed thereon, by which the world may know that, so far as we approve as monarchy, that in America the law is king. For as in absolute governments the king is law, so in free countries the law ought to be king, and there ought to be no other. In America, says Thomas Paine, the law ought to be king. Well, what is he talking about by replacing the rule of one man or one family? with the law. Clearly, Thomas Paine is talking about the Word of God. He is talking about the Bible. He is talking about the Almighty as having an authority that I think we run the risk of going ditch to ditch today in our culture by rejecting the mistakes of the extreme right-wing perspective on you know, theocracy, for want of a better word, or the role religion should play in government and society. We can't make the mistake of going to the other extreme because a man who is both a founding father and whose published opinions are clearly not supportive of what we would call mainstream Christian views himself had the honesty or maybe the political pragmatism or the prudentism to be willing to say, yes, 
there is a role for religion in the formation of this nation. And I worry a little bit that as a country, we are so busy playing favorites within our history books that we've forgotten what those history books actually say. The clip I played a moment ago is from a podcast called LibriVox. LibriVox recording is, you know, one of my favorite groups of podcasts because what they've essentially done is create a community where people who love classics, and that would, that would be me, can actually contribute to the enjoyment of classics by others by reading. So you end up with essentially amateur readers of books that we would probably have to rightly describe as being very old, but actually some of the very best, very old books being read by people who whatever sort of polish and skill they may lack as professional orators bring passion to it because they're volunteers. They're making a podcast recording chapter by chapter of books that they love. Among the books that I love is Common Sense, and it is among my favorite, warts and all, LibriVox recordings. Because again, I missed the opportunity in college to give this particular pamphlet its due. And if nothing else, I'm hoping that today we've challenged a couple of things that are really important. First, this pure as snow idea we have of, of the world we live in right now being perverted and wrong, but our founding fathers being so great and so innocent and so righteous and so correct and so Christian and so wrong. If we went back to periods in time where some of these colonies in the Northeast had the illegitimacy rates that they do, we might long for our present day because our present day has one advantage that I don't see when you look back in time. And this is one of these matters of perspective. If, if I was speaking to my, my mom about it, she would probably have a different idea that it's probably a good thing that back then all of those people who got pregnant out of wedlock at least got married. But I'm not sure that I'm sold on the notion that what we've seen in my lifetime and in the decade before my lifetime was a good thing. I'm not sure shotgun marriages create good matrimony. And what's described in Schenkman's book about legends, lies, and cherished myths of American history is a lot of shotgun weddings. But as Americans, we probably don't even know. We have no collective scholarly memory of the fact that those shotgun weddings were even necessary. What that tells us about the status and the quality of the education going in our schools today should be sobering. If you have a different opinion, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at hotmail.com and comments are enabled at the website http colon slash slash inappropriate conversations dot podbean dot com. Thanks for listening.
music by Kevin McLeod.